Do something, our patients demand. Do anything. Forget the costs and just fix us. We as doctors serving those patients are caught in the middle of a techno-consumptive society that runs on corporate greed and maybe our own greed, too. Can we get out from under the mess and fix our broken system? You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Dr. Richard Deo, professor of medicine and public health at the University of Washington in Seattle and co-author of the astounding book, Hope or Hype. Welcome, Richard. Thanks. We're caught in a mess here. We're marketed all the time. Give us another example. Give us some examples of where we're doing stuff that's really stupid and cost-ineffective that we should change. What field? We get good examples almost every day. Just in the past month, we've been hearing a lot about new diabetes drugs that appear to be no more effective than older drugs like metformin, and yet they're considerably more expensive and certainly promoted as sort of a first line of treatment. And you have to take a step back and ask, well, gosh, if we've got these meta-analyses and randomized trials suggesting that the older drugs are just as good, why aren't we making even more use of those? On the device side, I think an important story that many people will recognize is the story of the pulmonary artery catheter, or or Swan-Gans catheter, which really became popularized a couple of decades ago and was widely used in intensive care units. Practically every patient in an ICU had a, had a Swan-Gans catheter, but in the last decade or so, we've seen a series of randomized trials that show that, in fact, patients who got these things didn't have any better outcomes, but they certainly increased costs and increased certain types of complications. And so now we know that with that evidence in hand, the use of the pulmonary artery catheters just in the last couple of years has dropped substantially but that was certainly standard of care for for decades and undoubtedly at some substantial cost. Well, let me take you to to a more practical example. For instance, as a dermatologist in my office, I see lots of patients and with lots of things that I basically have to say to them, you don't do anything about this. It's fine. And some of these patients look at me like, you know, what the heck am I paying my copay for this visit? You're telling me to do nothing. I mean, it's really difficult to do that sometimes. Are we not spending enough time with our patients explaining things, or are we guilty of this? And are we making money on things that we do? You were quoted in the New York Times as saying oncologists are making uh, large salaries with medications that might not be worth the cost. Can you comment on that? Patients certainly do come to us uh, requesting things that oftentimes we, we don't think they need. And in some cases, I think those conditions have just been over-medicalized in a sense, uh, so that patients expect some medical solution to minor or trivial or even non-problems. On the oncology drug story, I guess my my concern about the whole spate of very expensive new drugs, in many cases biologics, for treating cancer is that they often have, in fact, rather modest benefits, extending life by a month or so for people who are at the end of a terminal illness, and yet their costs are well above the average family's entire income. And so I think we really have to step back and say, gosh, is this a good use of funds? If these patients were getting an extra year of life in which they felt terrific and were playing tennis and having a grand time, that would be one thing. But but if they're getting another month of life in which they feel wretched, nauseated, vomiting, losing their hair, losing weight, feeling terrible, and are really just sort of having a prolonged death, I think we really have to ask if that's a good investment. Well, are we doing the appropriate studies for this? Because it seems to me so many of the, quote, studies being done these days are done with pharmaceutical company money, 
and the end result is what they want to show you, and they don't show you the negative results. Well, there's a lot of concern about that. And in fact, one major effort that's going on right now is to try to, to get drug companies to divulge all of the results that they have from research. Right now, it's certainly common for the good results to get published and to see the light of day, and the unfavorable results simply are buried. The journal editors, of course, are trying to get uh, everyone who does clinical trials, including drug companies, to register these trials and describe the methods and the measurements that are being made ahead of time so that the public and the profession can come back afterwards and say, well, what did you find in this study that you said you were going to do? Uh, We'd like to see the results accounted for as you described them at the outset. I think companies have have sort of entered into this registration process a bit reluctantly, but I think it has a lot of promise for helping us to to get a better handle on what all the results really are. Right. Are we missing pure research these days, or is everything funded by the pharmaceutical companies? Well, you know, the NIH is still there. They're still funding good research, including good clinical research. And in some cases, I would say the NIH is doing the studies that we wish the drug companies would do. I guess one dramatic example was the example of antiarrhythmic drugs like enconide and fleconide some years back, where the drug companies had proven that they suppressed arrhythmias but hadn't really studied their effects on mortality. And it wasn't until the NIH funded some large randomized trials that we learned that, yes, indeed, these drugs can suppress arrhythmias, but in fact, they increase the mortality rate rather than decreasing it. And so the NIH is still in the game, but we depend on the companies for a whole lot of the research that we use. Somehow we've got to get a better accounting for, for the results they're finding. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Dale from the University of Washington in Seattle about how our healthcare system is manipulated by outside forces whose focus is just a bit too much on the bottom line. Richard, let me ask you a question. A few years ago, I remember a number being batted around that we spent, uh, I forget, something like 80% of our healthcare dollars in the last two weeks of people's lives. Is that accurate? Well, it's a large number. I can't tell you exactly. It's not all healthcare dollars, but it's Medicare dollars, and a substantial fraction ends up being spent just in the last couple of months of life, you bet. And should we be doing this, or should we be, in thinking about reforming a healthcare system, putting some practical limits and saying, like, gee, no. You know, we can't afford to do this, and what do we do here? These studies that look at the last two months of life are always done in retrospect, and of course, we don't know when we're treating patients whether they have just two months left or whether they have six months or a year left, Uh, and our prognostic abilities are pretty limited still when it gets to that fine distinction. In defense of uh, physicians, it's hard to know when is really the right time to be more cautious. On the other hand, There are times when I think we've got a pretty good idea what's going on. After all, this is the idea behind hospice and the use of hospice care near the end of life, and I think we have patients uh, for whom we know that the end is near, and I would argue that it's probably wise at that point for patients and families to understand the realities that they face. And for most patients, the truth is they would rather die at home surrounded by their family and uh, in their own bed than in a, a hospital bed, often alone, surrounded by catheters and tubes and uh, hospital personnel. And so if, if we can help people, I think, to fulfill that wish, it may be better for them, better for their families, and in fact, better for healthcare systems like Medicare. Well, let me ask you a question. Talk in your book, once again, I'll plug it, Hope or Hype. 
the obsession with medical advances and the high cost of false promises. You talk about how the drug companies and device companies manipulate us. You quote Thomas Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow. If they get you asking the wrong questions, they, they don't have to worry about the answers. How, how are we manipulated by them? I put that line in there because I think in some cases the studies that emerge from drug companies or device companies are really not answering the questions that we want to know most. So, for example, if we have a study that compares a new drug to a placebo, that's helpful. Chances are very good the company knew that it would be better than a placebo. But that's not really what we want to know. We want to know, is it better than the cheap drug that we're already using for this particular condition? So it's sort of a a redirection, if you will. It's a way of getting us to forget about, sort of be deflected from asking the, the critical question that really affects how we practice. And I think that's just a very common problem with how research is designed and reported. How do we handle the ethical issues ourselves? Every day in my office, I'm confronted by patients with totally benign problems, Uh, like seborrheic keratosis, that they want off and they want me to submit under their insurance, and I have to turn them down. And I'm always thinking they'll just go to somebody else and have them done who will fraudulently send that to an insurance company. Do we just have to bite the bullet and be ethical about it? or There actually is a growing literature on this because, in fact, we all are guilty of coding a diagnosis in a certain way that's favorable for insurance coverage, reporting things about our patients that are favorable for our patients, and it's easy to, to rationalize as being an advocate for our patients, which we all want to be. I don't know how we deal with that. I, I think honesty is the best policy, and certainly unnecessary care of any sort is an important contributor in my mind to the rising cost of health care. So if we were more honest about those things that we think are really unnecessary, it might mean a more difficult discussion with our patients. Uh, but I think in the long run, it really is a bit of an investment in a solvent health care system. Well, my answer is I'd rather have the patient respect me than like my decision on that and respect them telling the truth. You talk in your book, you argue that changes have to come on all fronts. So what's the solution for insurers? What do they have to do here? You say in your book, pay now or pay more later. I think the insurers are a bit guilty of just saying, okay, we'll cover whatever comes along and the FDA approves, and if the cost of care rise, we'll just increase the premiums and go our merry way. Of course, as employers begin to scream more about the cost and patients begin to scream more about the out-of-pocket costs, I think that becomes a less tenable position. So I think the insurance companies really have to take a more critical stance and begin to ask not merely, as the FDA does, uh, is this drug safe enough to market? Is it better than a placebo? I think the insurance companies are going to have to begin asking, well, is this really a significant advance over what we have already? And in some sense, is the cost worth it? Which raises the ugly specter of beginning to study cost effectiveness. But I think it's something that we have to do at some point. If we keep spending money on things that are only marginally effective, it means there's less money for the things that really are highly effective and being able to cover those for the whole population. The other thing that I think the insurance companies could do is actually contribute to the research effort. I think that they should play a role in helping to study some of these innovations and determine just how beneficial, how helpful they really may be and whether coverage is warranted. That would be for for perhaps the most expensive innovations. But when we talk about very expensive new imaging tests, very expensive new surgical procedures, or very expensive new drugs, 
it might be well worth the investment to, to learn a little bit more about just uh, how useful and important they are before actually providing the coverage. Wow, so you think those CEOs should cut their multi-million dollar salaries down and buy some research? I think it wouldn't hurt at all. And do you think maybe we could take some of that money and, and take your book, Hope or Hype, and maybe send copies to congressmen and senators so when they're reforming our health care system they could read something intelligent about it? I'd be delighted to have that happen, of course. I think uh, the, the reality is that everybody needs to be a little more honest and open about uh, the things that we're doing and, and where wasteful dollars are being spent. Right. We're all part of the problem. Well, Richard, thanks for being my guest today and sharing your ideas about our health care system and how we need to think and how we need to practice to help it. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. The hosts, producers, and staff at ReachMDXM are here for you, the physicians who care for your patients. Tell us what you want and what you need. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we truly thank you for listening.